Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're so glad you joined us today. Have you ever had feelings that you didn't know how to express to God or to someone else? We've got good news. There's a whole book of the Bible that gives language to the deepest, rawest feelings that we have, and it's the book of Psalms. The rest of the Bible is God's words to you. The Psalms are your words to God. We pray that this message blesses you today. And if you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. If you have your Bible, you want to head over to Psalm 147. 147. Uh, We're wrapping up our series in the book of Psalms, and we're going to the end of the Psalter. And so there's 150 psalms, and so today we're going to look at 147, and Lord willing, Matt next week will close the series at 150, I think he's doing. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, ESV, Psalm 147, 147. So we're going to head over there. God's Word reads like this, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat, He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. An online account recently posted this picture with the caption, I was at Target and I saw this. On the wellness and self-improvement section at Target, Someone, I'm assuming, took an album of uh, Taylor Swift's Midnights and placed it there. 
author Rena Raphael in an article titled The Taylor Swift Wellness Connection says she attended Swift's latest Eras tour and talked to, quote, gangs of women decked out in pink cowboy hats and faces full of glitter, eagerly telling her why they emptied their savings account for this event. One woman, she says, even requested an early induction of her baby so she could attend this concert, stating it was for her mental health and that, quote, we all need Taylor. And another said, I depend on her. She gets me through every crisis. What is it about Taylor Swift and her music that's making people feel these things? Raphael says, it's her relatability and her vulnerability. Another psychiatrist, okay, Suzanne Crowell, says, Taylor says to her fans, borrow my strength, embrace your pain, make something beautiful with it, and then you can shake it off. What would Taylor Swift do? That sounds oddly familiar. <laughs> Is actually a refrain among certain patients in her practice, she says. Her music makes you feel seen. And it's not only that, it's her greatness. She just became a billionaire, she's hardworking, she's ambitious, and the same psychiatrist says that Taylor is someone so articulate, so generous, and so endlessly present, omnipresent, to talk to. Raphael adds that the growing number of especially American women who don't necessarily feel like they belong to something, say, like a church, being part of this cultural phenomenon of shared experiences makes you feel like you're included in something bigger than yourself. And she ends it by saying, and what's bigger than Taylor? Now, some of you may be wondering, is Robin uh, standing up this morning hating on Taylor? And if so, I know, I know, that means I have voluntarily chosen violence with you, right? I can feel the knives sharpening, right? No, no, be assured I am not, I am not. If I was, I would have been dead already because I live with a few Swifties of my own, all right? So no, no hating from me. And I may or may not like one of her songs, like Love Story. But it is fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating to see our cultural icons and idols, interesting word, uh, are really shadows of what our hearts really, really long for. Did you, did you hear the language in the articles? I, I want to belong to something bigger than myself. I need purpose, significance, while wanting something real. Someone to know me and still love me. We, we want greatness and nearness. Well, what our text is offering us this morning is an answer to the question, what is bigger than Taylor? Right? It's a God that is full of greatness and grace. And both of those come together in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. The psalm actually even starts, look at how it starts, verse 1. It's good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, literally, it is beautiful. And a song of praise is fitting, it fits. Just like birds are made for the air, 
and fish for the sea, the human heart is made for God. And the heart of worship is not just to find God useful, but to find him beautiful. It is beautiful, he says. There is only one God who fits the God-sized hole in our hearts. There's only one. And so as we come to the end of our series here, the last section, the last category is the lift psalms, right? We started with the live psalms, wisdom psalms, how to live. We then went to the, we went to the lean psalms, which is how to trust God. And we went to lament psalms about how to pour out our heart in trials. And now we're coming to lift psalms that praise the Lord. And that, if you ever want to go to where are the psalms that praise the Lord, it's right here in Psalms 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150. They go, they go together with power-packed praise. They, bo- they all start with praise the Lord. In Hebrew is the word hallelujah. That's what that means, praise the Lord. And most scholars think these, these psalms were assembled after the exile. Now, if you know your, your history, around 600 B.C., a group of people called the Babylonians came and took Israel, the people of God, to Babylon for 70 years. The city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The people were devastated. They were heartbroken. 70 years go by, and then they were permitted to return. So now, after all the heartache, all the devastation, all the pain, they are back home. And they're now reflecting on who God is. And so when you read 146 to 150, think about that. So that's why it's full of joy and celebration. It's ecstatic. It's exhilarating because they're just so happy to be back where God has them home in Israel. And so we're going to jump into one of them, that they, one of these songs that they sang, 147. Now, it's organized by three sections. Each section starts with Praise the Lord, verse 1. Praise the Lord, verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Verse 12, praise the Lord, praise your God. And it's three songs in one. Okay? And under each command to praise the Lord are are reasons why we should praise the Lord. That's how it's organized. The whole thing, if you notice, is about him. Uh, How many he's? He, 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 and his all throughout the whole psalm. And the Lord, the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, is capitalized. It should be capitalized. And when the, when the English translation capitalizes it, they're not just trying to, it's not for emphasis like, Lord. <laughs> it's actually telling you the actual Hebrew name, the personal name of God is being used there. And that's Yahweh. It, Yahweh means he's He's in a relationship with his people. He's in covenant, we would say, uh, with us. He's wrapped up his heart with our heart. It's this God that they are praising. And the psalmist goes back and forth. He goes back and forth from God's greatness to God's grace. His bigness to his nearness. He's extensive and he's intensive. Not just the God up there but a God down here. And so that's the, that's the outline for the message this morning. All right, point one, God's greatness. We're gonna praise him for that. Point two, God's grace. We're gonna praise him for that. And point three, how do we respond to both?
his greatness and his grace. Greatness, grace, how do we respond? Let's go. Praise God for his greatness, verse, verses 2, 4 to 5, 8, 9, 13 to 20. Right, it's all scattered throughout. It kind of goes back and forth. Uh, one of the unique characteristics of this psalm is that if you look at all the verbs, it's the present participle, meaning like the verbs, building, healing, binding, counting, lifting, etc. It's when you see the present participle, it means it's constant. Right? It's ongoing. The constant and dynamic work of the Lord for his people. He's actively involved in our lives. So how great is this God? Well, there's several, several ways we see his greatness. Look at verse 2. The Lord builds Jerusalem. Remember, now they're back, in, back home, and they're saying, God's building us again. Right? The city walls, the temple rebuilt. He's building up Jerusalem. And then verse 13, he's strengthening the bars of the gates. Verse 14, he's making peace in your borders. So peaceful borders, locked gates, built walls, built temple. So he's praising God for his greatness as builder. Builder and restorer of a big city. Again, building, participle. Continuing, ongoing work of reconstruction and restoration. So we praise God as builder. Not only that, Verse 4, we praise his greatness as the governor of the universe. Look at verse 4. He determines the number of stars, and he gives to all of them their names. How many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy? David Kornreich, assistant professor at Ithaca College, New York, he said this. It's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. You can't just sit around and count stars in a galaxy. And the word uh, here, <laughs> the word is saying, the, literally the image is like a merchant counting coins from his wallet, right? Is how God counts stars. He determines, meaning he takes interest and knows. He has a name, in fact, for each one. So his greatness as the rebuilder of the city, his greatness as the governor of the universe. Then verse 5, his greatness is he's all-powerful and all-wise. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, this is also, I thought it was interesting. The, the number of the stars and, and the, the word number in verse 4 and the word measure in verse 5, his, his understanding is beyond measure. It's literally the same Hebrew word. So we could literally translate it this way. He counts the stars, but his understanding cannot be counted. That's what he's saying. If we, if we can't even count the stars, the, the, the professor is like, I don't, I don't know, how do, you, how do you do that? The psalmist is saying, we can't count that, and we can't even count the mind. How are we, how are we ever going to understand the mind of God? We can't. He's great. He's, this, is, this is all about his greatness. Not only more, there's more, verse 8 and 9, 15 to 18. He's also a great creator and provider. 8 and 9, he covers the heavens with clouds, rain for the earth, grass on the hills, food for the beasts. That's very logical here. God establishes the clouds, produces the rain, nourishes the earth, and produces the grass. He is the one who provides the food for the cattle and even the ravens. The point is, Mother Nature didn't do it, Father God did it. Right. 
He's in the city building up Jerusalem, and he's in the wild and the country making grass grow on the hills and feeding the ravens. Right? He's a rebuilder. He's a governor of the universe, all wise, all powerful, the creator and provider. And one more thing, he controls the seasons all through the greatness of his word. Look at verse 15. He sends out his command to the earth. That's his word. His word runs. It's active. When God speaks, the word goes out like a messenger, accomplishes his purpose. He makes the snow cover the ground, he says, like a woolen fleece covers sheep. He scatters frost, he says, like a man throwing ashes out of a fireplace. He throws hail like someone tossing confetti. Creation obeys this word, even melts ice, verse 18. He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. And that was very comforting to us, especially when we were uh, living in Chicago. (laughs) Melted the ice, thank you, Lord, as we prayed in July. Thank you. Finally, the psalmist is declaring God's greatness. Builder, governor, creator, sustainer, all-powerful, all-wise, and calls us to praise him for his greatness. Now, why? Why? Why do we need to do this? What good does this do? It says it's fitting. We have to do it. Why? Because if we don't, our circumstances and our sins and our fears and our issues they're going to look bigger than God is. See, we don't need smaller problems. We need a bigger God. We need to see a bigger God. And that's what praise does. Praise lifts our eyes from ourselves to God's greatness. Man, we we used to stare at the stars at night. Uh, Just even the other day, I was like, I don't ever look up anymore. Now we stare at the screens at night. When we, when we used to look at the stars at night, the world would feel huge and it would remind us that we are small, tiny, dependent creatures. Now the screens make the world look small and we feel connected to everything. And then so now we're tempted to be like God, all present, all knowing. And we make ourselves bigger. And God becomes smaller. I mean, no wonder we're anxious and alone. And when, we're, when we're living out of that mentality, yeah, even just the other day, this past week, I, I started feeling the if-only blues. Have you ever had the if-only blues? If only this, I were this. If only I had that. If only I could be this. Brene Brown calls this the scarcity mentality. Never black enough. Never good, never pretty, never smart, never successful, never rich. Enough. If only, if only. And then comparisonitis sets in. It's a disease. Have you heard of that disease? Comparisonitis. That's the disease where you think everybody else has a great except you. And then envy follows. You resent God's goodness to others, and you ignore God's goodness to you. That's envy. I could be happy, but look at what I have right now. It's not good enough. 
We keep looking at the lack. This, is, this started in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. Right? We were like this. God said, you can have everything you want except that one tree. But the enemy said, look at that one tree. You don't have it. I bet you that all the other trees are, this one tree is more satisfying than all the other trees, right? Maximize the lack, minimize the abundance. That's what sin does. That's when God becomes small in our eyes and we become big. Nothing is good enough. It makes God appear small. And as I was wallowing in that, and if only, and I was doing that, the word of the Lord in Jeremiah 1 came to me. God says this, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Mm. See what he's saying? Your life doesn't start with you. Your life starts with me. That's what he's saying. Before Jeremiah knew God, God knew Jeremiah. Uh, Eugene Peterson says, before it ever crossed our minds that God might be important, God singled us out as important. Before we were formed in the womb, God knew us. We are known before we know. Hmm. So we don't begin with ourselves, but we begin with God at the center. Your identity begins when you begin to understand, not when you begin to understand yourself. Your identity begins when, you, when what, what God thinks of you. And here I am like, if only, if only this, if only that. And the Lord interrupts and says, Robin, if only you wrapped your arms around my infinite greatness. If only you sensed how that I, the, the counter of the stars knows you too. If only that, that's the fire I want to light in your heart. When my daughter was small, and we were once in an elevator, and we were the first ones on, and then more and more people started to enter the elevator. And she, I just watched her starting to move back like this, getting a little bit anxious each time, and then eventually I can feel her on my knees because she's pressed back <laughs> like this. And I, that makes sense because from her perspective, it's getting stuffy and suffocating, looking at people's backsides and belt buckles and like, everything is bigger than her. And then at some point, it's got too much. She looks up and then she raises her hands towards me. And then I'm like, okay, I'll save you out of, out of this. How, do I, how will I save you out of this? I'll just pick you up and see life from my perspective right here in my arms. Amen. See, what, hap what happened? What happened right there? Circumstances didn't change. We're still stuck in the stuffy elevator, right? With a bunch of people. She's still in there, right? But her perspective changed. Yeah. Right? Because she's now in her father's arms, right? Yeah. Despite being in a crowded elevator. See, that makes all the difference. She's safe, she's seen, she's held. That's what praise does, New River. You are lifting your arms to the Father. So when you lift your arms like this, us all you're saying, I need a hug. I need you to pick me up right out of this circumstance into your arms. Right? That's what you're saying. 
my circumstances are this. Yes, Lord, it's getting stuffy in here, but everything's looking small. But when I lift my hands to the Father and he picks me up, that makes all the difference. So if God is appearing small to you right now, loved ones, start to praise him. Whether you feel it or not, the, the feeling will follow the action. It really will. Recenter your heart on the greatness of God. Praise him. Praise him. And when he lifts you up, you're not just going to see the rubble of your life. You're going to see him as the rebuilder. Right? You're not going to just see yourself as forgotten and forsaken. But no, the star namer, the star counter knows my name too. Uh, if he's the creator and sustainer and provider of the earth and the animals, I know he can provide for me. If his word melts the ice in Chicago, I know he can melt my heart of stone too. So we praise God for his greatness. Now secondly, we praise God also for his grace. His grace. Verses 2 to 3, 9, 13 to 14. Now you might be like, Robin, listen. I want to praise God right now, but look at my wounds. Look at the shattered pieces of my heart. Look at my illness. Look at my backsliding. Look at my crushed hopes, my broken dreams. And the psalmist says, this great God, who's all these things, is also a God of grace. God of grace. Let's, let's look at it here. Look at verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, yes, but he also gathers the outcasts of Israel. He's not just building a broken structure. He's rebuilding broken lives. The idea here is he's a shepherd. They were scattered like sheep, and now God is gathering them back gently like a shepherd. Not only that, look at verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He's not just a namer of stars, but he's a tender healer of broken hearts. He restores not just broken walls, but also broken hearts. The star counter is a tear collector too. Psalm 56, verse 8. He collects our tears in his bottle. One author says, if God keeps track of our tears in his bottle, that means my pain and your pain is precious to him. And you don't have to stop the flow of what he finds as treasure. He's a healer of broken hearts. That word broken here literally means broken into pieces. Is that you this morning? Broken hearted by sin? Disappointment, betrayal, abuse, death of a loved one, divorce, illness, loss, maybe the effect of what drugs have done to your family. It's just broken into pieces. The text says he's on the ground with you, and there's dirt under his fingernails. The word heals is the present tense. Again, present tense, participle, continuously. He's not done. 
continuously healing. That means he's presently gathering all the shattered pieces of you, and he's continuing to be your all-powerful, but very tender cardiologist that you need. And he binds, it says, binds, that word is putting back what's broken, wrapping them up, bandaging. See the tenderness here. Binding them back together. See, time is not what's going to heal wounds. God heals wounds. Verse 9, more grace. He who cares for the creation, he gives the beast their food, but he adds this, and the young ravens that cry. Here he is, the creator sending his word for the seasons, but even the bird who... That's a, 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 not even a raven, a young raven, a baby bird. He doesn't even overlook the smallest cries. In the Old Testament, ravens were considered unclean. Young ravens especially are now insignificant. And here they are, needy and inarticulate. They're, they're, they're crying. Have you ever seen baby birds in a nest? Their mouths open. They can't even articulate anything. And some of them don't even make a sound. They just have their mouth open. But God hears them. God hears them. So, as Jesus would say, how much more you, who only have groans and sighs in your heart this morning, you can't even articulate it. You don't even have words. You don't have nothing. Sometimes nothing comes out. Jesus would say, you are worth more than many, many sparrows. That he provides for you even when you can't articulate what you need. Grace upon grace. Look at how personal he gets in verses 13 to 14. You count the number of you and yours. I count, I think, five times here. He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He, he makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. See, not only is he protecting protecting the borders of the land, but he's coming right into your home. And he's blessing your children and putting food on the table, the finest of wheat. He's that near. See, not only that great, but he's that near. His grace there in your house, right? In your house. A late author, Brendan Manning, shares a story. Uh, He struggled many, many years with alcoholism. And literally, he would end up in the gutter. Like, like he would have bad nights, and he would wake up in the gutter. Literally in the gutter. <laughs> One time, he says, he saw a mother holding her little boy's hand, walking towards him. The boy approached Brennan and said, Mommy, look at him. And the woman pulled her son away. and said, don't look at that filth. All that is pure filth. And then she kicked him, and then he broke two of his ribs. During this gutter time, he says, <clears throat> he had a friend who would fly down every two weeks, fly down every two weeks, just to sit with him in the gutter, and then take him out to breakfast. He said, he didn't try to change me. He just loved me. Do you hear this, loved ones? That there is someone who comes to the gutters when, that we find ourselves and refuses to kick us and call us filth. 
but instead gathers us up like a gentle shepherd, healing our broken hearts tenderly like a gentle surgeon, putting us together. Do you see the direction of divine love here? There's one direction, and it is down. Down. And so, yes, if you're like, I can't raise my hands this morning to praise his greatness because my heart is shattered. I have good news for you. Thank you for coming. The good news is that the grace of God flows downhill. He is the God on the ground. And he loves you. He hangs out in the gutters. That's where he meets you. The great God of the universe is the God who came near. So New River Church, we are not. Because that's where God hangs out in the gutters, right? If that's true, this church is not a museum for saints. We are a hospital for sinners. So, welcome. You're not too lost for God to find you. You're not too dirty for God to cleanse you. And you're not too broken for God to fix you. And you're not too hurt. You're not too hurt for God to heal you. And you're not too far gone for God to reach you. You're not too guilty for God to forgive you. And you are not too sinful for God to save you. The one who gathers the outcasts and binds the brokenhearted, who hears the inarticulate prayers of a raven, also welcomes you into his arms as the God of grace. That's God of grace. Now, what, what's our response? That's our last point. What's our response to this, right? Definitely, the psalmist says the command here is to praise him, for sure. But what should this do? His greatness, his grace. What's our response? Verse 6 And 10 to 11, look at verse 6. Who does the Lord lift up? It's the humble. Our response is only one thing, humility. Humility. Look at verse 10. His his delight is not in the strength of a horse. The horse is referring to military strength? Nope. His delight is not in the legs of the man. That means your own strength and self-sufficiency. God is attracted to weakness. God is repulsed by pride. Right? He draws near to weakness, to humility. The delusion that we think we are strong and able. And our delight is in our work ethic, our morality, our cleverness, our strategies. The Lord takes no pleasure in that. No pleasure in that. But instead... When you think about his greatness and you think about his grace, what gives this unimaginably immense great God pleasure? What gives him real joy and delight? It tells you, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Wow. When human beings put their life's hope in his gracious, steadfast love, God is pleased. Humility then says, Lord, I, 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 can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't self-heal my heart. My strength has failed. I, 
I need a love that is not dependent on my performance. I need a love that's not dependent on my morality. I need a love that's not dependent on my muscles. I need a love that doesn't wax or wane depending on how well I do, I'm doing. I need someone in his greatness to know me fully and in his grace to love me completely. That's what I need. That's humility. That is humility. Who can know me fully and still love me completely? Because I can't keep going like this, Lord. Well, there's an interesting place in Isaiah as I close. The worship team's going to come on up. Isaiah 49. Just go there real quick. Isaiah 49 is an interesting place. God tells his people of his greatness. He talks about his great plans for them. And he's saying all this stuff. And then the people complain. Isaiah 49, 14. The Lord, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. What they're saying is, you know, it's nice. Yes, okay, you're great. You've done great things. And your grace is great. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But I don't feel loved. They're questioning God's love for them. Now, what does God do with this? God takes them seriously. God takes the complaint seriously, and he says, can a mother forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? So he gives them an image of a mother not forgetting a nursing child. But then he says this really strange image. He gives them a really strange image. Verse 16, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Hmm. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, in ancient times, the name of a master might be tattooed on the servant. And that means people knew that the servant belonged to the master. But never, ever, ever is the name of a servant tattooed to a master. That means the master is devoted to the servant. And that's what we have here. Except, it doesn't say tattooed. Right? Behold, I have tattooed you. No. I have engraved you. What a horrible image. Horrible image. It means to engrave with a hammer, chisel, or a spike. Wait a minute. Someone in the world, out of love would allow people to take a hammer and drive a spike through the palm of their hand. This is hundreds of years before Jesus Christ has shown up. And God's giving them an image. You know what he's saying? I'm not just talking the talk about my greatness and my grace. I'm going to prove it to you. And Isaiah's like, I don't know what he says. I don't know what that means. (laughs) And the psalmist is like, maybe like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. How can a God that great also be a God of grace? But you and I know. You and I know. Centuries later, the great God who names the stars climbs down the staircase of glory and comes down and becomes small like a baby. The greatness of God and the grace of God is brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. And to prove it to you, 
and to prove it to me that he's not just talking the talk. Someone takes a nail and a hammer and drives it into his palm. And then when he resurrects, he tells another doubter named Thomas, put your hand there. It's real. It's real. My love is real. My heart became broken so yours could be healed. And now my love flows downward from Calvary's hill all the way to the gutter of your life. The cross says, yes, you do not need to climb up into his arms after all. You can collapse down into them. That's the love we need this morning. Tim Keller says it best, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved, that's a nightmare, right? That's a greatest fear. You know me, but you don't love me. But to be fully known and truly loved, it is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from our pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. This is the love that has known us to the bottom, the gutter, and that has loved us all the way to the sky. His scars prove it. His scars prove it. And do you know that was his resurrected body that had the scars? That means today, right now, in eternity, in heaven, he's gonna, he has those scars. Right? And so forever, forever, all of our days, we're going to be looking at him. And we're going to say, this great God that has made the stars is also a God of grace. And he's proved it by his love on the cross. Amen. What more does he have to do for you, loved one? Well, that about wraps it up for today. We pray that today's message encouraged you. And if you would like more information or just to contact us, go to our website at newriverchurch.org.